So the, for those of you that are not familiar, this is a cell phone. Um, I don't know how this thing works. I use it every day, lots of times throughout the day to send text messages, phone, make phone calls on occasion, because honestly, who makes phone calls on these, right? Um, to, to you know, get on social media, to check email, etc. I use that every day. I have no idea how that thing works. I have no idea how you can send, you know, text and images and it gets converted into little bits of information and code and then it gets reassembled on the other end of somebody else's device. I have no idea how that works. I'm a plant guy. I have no idea how the process of photosynthesis works. Sure, I can write out for you the chemical equation of, you know, how plants take carbon dioxide and water and turn it into carbohydrates. But how plants harness light to make that reaction, we don't fully understand. I really don't know. I don't understand gravity. I don't understand why I'm not floating off into space. I'm sure some of you could probably explain that if you're, you know, Jake, uh, you know, physics, Mr. Physics right there, Mr. Engineer, could explain gravity to me. But I really don't understand that, that thing. And another thing that I don't understand is I don't understand this. So this appeared uh, in Worcester's paper the other day. For those of you that don't know, that's me, on their Facebook page. Uh, and the, the caption says, two gardeners receive facelifts at Seacrest Arboretum. The first is a koi pond, and the second is a hummingbird haven that honors a volunteer. Uh, and so I don't know how that made it through the editorial process, and nobody caught that one little typo that changes everything. It should say, two gardens not to gardeners. The, uh, the, comment, the, the, the comment section was quite hilarious. Some things are not mentionable for church. Uh, but one thing, uh, the one person commented and said, I wish he would turn around so I could see his face that is a koi pond. So I don't understand. I don't understand. There's so much that we don't understand, especially about life. But when it comes to matters of faith, there's things that we don't understand things that we don't understand about God, that God is three in one, yet God is mystery. There's things about the Bible that we don't understand that maybe we'll never be comfortable with, but yet there it is. There's things about Jesus that we don't understand. And perhaps there's things about faith, about Christianity that you don't understand. For you, that's a stumbling block. That's holding you back from going any further in your faith. And specifically, we're going to look at the, the question and the person of Jesus today. Specifically, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? We're in week three of our series, Foundations, where we're unpacking what we believe as a church. Week one, we talked about the fact that God is three in one, that we are invited into an eternal community of love. Last week, we looked at how God created humanity, that he made us in his image, in his likeness, that he made us uh, to be a reflection of who he is, but we also recognize that we are cracked images of what we were supposed to be. That the image of God is still there, but yet somehow it's been tarnished. It's been tainted by our own decisions to find good and evil on our own terms. We call that sin, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you want to watch our messages in their entirety, you can go to our YouTube and, and find our messages there. But we're in week three, and today we're unpacking what we believe about Jesus. What we believe specifically about salvation. That it's the blood of Jesus that covers our sins. You see, we talked about how we are made in God's image, but yet we sin. And that we all have solutions to our own sin. We come up with, with ways of counteracting our sin. Some of us, we try to do good things and hope that eventually that we do enough good things that they outweigh the bad things that we have done. 
but how do we know if we've done enough good things and how do we know if we've done too many bad things to outweigh the good things that we are trying to do? And what happens whenever we bump up against somebody that has done more good things than we've done, they've done less bad things than we've done? How do we know then that, that they're not in better standing with God than we are? And the fact of the matter is we don't know. We can never know if we've done enough good things to be made right with God. And so we try to do good things to, to solve our sin problem, but then we also try to make rules for ourselves. You know, we made homemade ice cream a couple weeks ago, and uh, we also had cherry pie and lots of desserts. And so I'm, you know, a couple nights I'm like, you know, I'm not going to have homemade ice cream tonight after dinner. And then after dinner comes, it's like, you know what? I just need something sweet. And I broke the rule that I made for myself earlier in that day. I see a lot of laughter because you guys do the same thing. Maybe it's, you know, I'm not going to spend as much time on TikTok today or Instagram Reels. I'm not going to spend as much time just endlessly scrolling. I'm not going to look at X. I'm not going to to listen to uh, certain types of media that fill me with hate and anger. But instead, we end up breaking our own rules. And so if we make rules to try to save ourselves from our sin problem, but we break them, how can we think that we can truly save ourselves? And the fact of the matter is that we can't do anything we can't do anything about the you in the mirror. When we look in the mirror, that person standing back, staring back at us, that they're the hardest person for us to change. For those of you in the room or watching online, you've got kids. You know how hard it is to change your kids' behavior. Our son, Judah, he's going to be two in October. He starts hitting his sister, Shiloh. And I don't know how many times we've told him, Judah, don't hit your sister. We've tried to, to stop that, but he's still does it. You know how hard it is to try to change somebody else's behavior, let alone our own behavior. As Christians, we believe that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross provides the sole basis for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, God freely offers salvation to those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as sufficient payment for their sin. We believe specifically that the blood of Jesus Christ, that it's what forgives us, and that it's ours by faith. And so we're going to unpack this idea that somehow that the blood of Jesus, by trusting in that, that that is what saves us from our sins. That it's not we that save us from our sins. It's not our rules. It's not our good stuff. But it's trusting in, it did that earlier, and it did not do that when I was practicing this week, that it is specifically, it's the blood of Jesus that covers over our sins. So we believe that God became flesh to rescue us from our sin problem. But this isn't something that we believe simply because the Bible tells us. We believe this because the earliest followers of Jesus believe this. The people that were closest to the events of the life of Jesus believe this. There were eyewitness accounts that got recorded and then those got written down and put into what we now call our New Testament. That we believe this about Jesus because there were eyewitnesses that believed it. And the Apostle Paul, in writing a letter to the church at Corinth, says this. That now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. Um, I don't have it all up there right now, so I'm just going to read it up here. By which you are being saved if you hold to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, 
as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. So the early church believed that it was the blood of Jesus that saved them from their sins. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. But why did Jesus have to die? Why does somebody else's blood cover over what I've done, covered the bad things or what some people might call evil? Why is it that somebody needed to die for me to live? If you're not a Christian in the room, here's a little bit of ammunition for you. Jesus forgave people all the time without him dying. There was an instance where some friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They, they ripped a hole in the house, in the roof of the house. They lowered their friend down on his mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, you're healed. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus went on to do more ministry. And so if God could forgive sins without Jesus having to die, then why did Jesus have to die? Why punish an innocent person? Perhaps you've, you've heard the argument that Jesus being punished by God on the cross was divine child abuse. That God somehow was abusing Jesus by placing him on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. Perhaps it's an argument that you've made or maybe you've heard other people say that. But it's an argument that quickly falls apart when you understand what Christians actually believe about God and about Jesus. Because as we look at the first week, Christians, we believe that God and Jesus, that they are one, that they're the same. So if God and Jesus are one, how can God be abusing Jesus on the cross? Because they're the same. They're both God. And the fact is that he can't. That is not considered divine child abuse. Today we'd call such self-abuse, we call it self-expression. We call it self-expression, so that argument quickly falls apart. Because the Apostle Paul said that God was in Christ, that he wasn't separated from Christ, but God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. That God wasn't separate, that God wasn't somehow just pouring on this wrath and walking away from Jesus, but God was there the entire time. Jesus believed that he was in control of his own death the entire time, that he willingly gave up his life for other people, that it wasn't taken from him, but he laid it down. And this idea that Jesus had died for us to live is something that followers of Jesus have wrestled with for 2,000 years since the events of the life of Jesus. So back to our passage. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, it was a church that was divided, separated by many things, and Paul was writing to clear up some confusion because people had entered this church and were beginning to teach that there wasn't actually a resurrection, that it was just simply made up And so Paul wrote to clear up this idea. Paul says, And I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. Gospel simply means the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, where we get our our term evangelism, or good newsing. It's going out spreading good news. I, I, I receive the good news that I preach to you, on which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is saying, look, the good news of Jesus wouldn't be good news for you if Jesus was still dead. If he didn't actually raise from the dead. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then you believed in vain. There's no hope, there's no life, there's no forgiveness. You were still under death and in sin. And what he says next is believed to be the first creedal statement in the, in the church. The creed is simply a, a summary statement of, of what people believe. You take complex ideas, distill them down, and that's what becomes a creed. Creeds are used to, um, to easily pass on information or ideas because at this time it's very costly to write things down. 
So in a world where it's costly, you make up a, a rhyming phrase almost, uh, a creedal statement for people to, to pass on easily, for it to be remembered. The Apostle Paul says this, Now I, I, I passed on to you as of most importance. That is, that this thing was top priority that I received. He received it, and then he passed it on to the church in Corinth. Now, the Apostle Paul is believed to have written this letter to the church around 53 AD. But it's believed that he was converted and went to Jerusalem around 33 AD. So he was writing this letter about 20 years after uh, he went to Jerusalem. But he went to Jerusalem about three, three years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So by that point in history, three years after the life of Jesus, the statement was already being circulated around. It was well known to the church. And so scholars, Christian and non-Christian, believe that this creedal statement was developed within months after the death, burial, and resurrection and that creedal statement got put into our New Testament because the eyewitnesses believed that it was valuable, because they saw Jesus crucified and they saw him live again. They didn't just make this up just to have nice things to put in the Bible, but they put it in because it actually happened. And Paul says this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That Christ died for our sins, that it was for our sins and not for his sins, that Christ lived a sinless death. He died for our sins. He didn't die for his own sins, but for the sins of humanity. That Christ died, that he definitely died. He didn't just appear to, to be dead. He didn't just swoon in the grave, but he actually died. This was something that the audience had a hard time believing and understanding because for them, kings, gods, they don't die Messiahs don't die, but yet here Jesus was, he died. And if Jesus died, then he really wasn't God, because gods don't die. But the Apostle Paul says, no, Christ actually did die. Then he says that he, he was buried. Again, he, he definitely died. You don't bury somebody that's alive. And then he was raised. That is, that he rose from the dead three days later. He didn't stay dead, and then he appeared. He was seen by many people. He continues on. He says that then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Yet some have fallen asleep. This idea that they've fallen asleep, some have died. But this group of 500 witnesses, this is a group of people that were not anonymous to the church, that these were people that were well known. Paul is saying, look, if you don't believe me, go talk to the people that saw Jesus crucified. And then they saw him live again. Go talk to them. Don't just take my word for it. Because if I'm simply making this up, then this group of 500 people could easily correct me and say, no, Christ actually, he stayed dead. He didn't rise, but that's not what happened. Because it's, it's really hard to make up myth, to make up legend when the witnesses to that event are still alive. As Paul says, go fact check me. And what he says next is perhaps the best evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, and then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. This was James, the half-brother of Jesus. See, James and Jesus were half-brothers because Jesus had God as his father and James had Joseph as, as his dad. And his own brothers and sisters did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. 
They didn't believe that he was anybody divine. They believed that he was simply just another person. I mean, what would it take for you to convince, or for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? Not much. It would take a lot to convince you. But James, uh, he thought that his brother was out of his mind. And Mark records this in his gospel. Then Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again, so they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to restrain them because they said he's out of his mind. And presumably, in a collectivist culture, that this was something that his entire family believed, James, the brother of Jesus, included. James believed that, but then James went on to write a letter that got included in our New Testament, and James writes this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He balances the divinity of God and the humanity of Jesus. He says, he says James, a servant of, of God and of my brother, who is my king, my Lord. That's what, what Lord means. It means king. That my brother is now my king. See, so the thing that went... that took James from being skeptical and thinking his brother was crazy was seeing his brother crucified and then having an encounter with his brother that was raised from the dead. That's what what took him from calling him crazy to calling him king, calling him Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? You would have to do what Jesus did. You would have to literally die and raise from the dead. And then Paul continues on. He says, And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. Paul's saying, look, I have my own story. I, I set out to crush Christianity, to destroy it. But then I encountered a risen Jesus. And now I've become the biggest promoter of Christianity. In fact, the apostle Paul has gone, gone on to do more for Christianity than any other person in all of history. And all that happened because he encountered Jesus. He had his own testimony, his own eyewitness experience. And so Paul challenges the Corinthian church to go fact check him because they believe that it was the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection that saved them from their sins, that it wasn't something that they could do, but something that had been done for them. The scholars agree that these eyewitness accounts are the best evidence for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if the death and resurrection of Jesus actually did happen, then why did Jesus have to die? Well, for us to understand that, we should watch this video because these guys are better at unpacking this idea than I am. So turn your attention up here. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good 
that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel, suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. So the blood of Jesus covers over our sin. It also cleanses us. Because there's things that we cannot do to save ourselves. If there's one thing, we can trust in King Jesus.
because we live in a completely different culture now where this idea of sacrifice is for and where it doesn't make sense. Where certainly the death of Jesus, his self-sacrifice, doesn't make sense to us, but that doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't make it any less real. As they said in the video, that God is so good that he chose to get rid of evil without getting rid of the things, the people that do evil, that he chose to take on our sin for us. He freely gave of his life, and we believe that God accommodates to our understanding, that he works in ways that we can understand, that he came at a time when sacrifice made sense, when the idea of animal sacrifice made perfect sense, where the blood of something that covers over the offenses, the sins, where it made sense. And Christians, we also believe that God, in his goodness, that God is patient, that God is, is willing to work with humanity to get rid of evil, but doing it in a way that doesn't make sense to us. By somehow, by mysteriously, this blood of Jesus somehow covers over it. But that doesn't make it any less true. We do things all the time that we don't understand, yet that doesn't make them any less true. We use phones every single day. We don't understand how they work, yet that doesn't stop us from using them. If you don't understand how an internal combustion engine works, that doesn't prevent you from getting in your car, turning the key, and driving away. You're not going to, to get on an airplane someday and say, you know what, let's, let's stay on the ground until I understand exactly how this thing works, because I want to know how every part of this airplane works for me to trust it, for me to start flying. No, we don't do that. And so if we don't do that in other parts of our lives, things that are seemingly inconsequential, why would we do that when it comes to our faith? Because perhaps the death, burial, and resurrection, the self-sacrifice of Jesus can be true, yet we don't have to understand all of it. Because again, there's things about life that we do that doesn't make sense, but yet we do them anyway. So why not do that when it comes to our faith. Because perhaps not following Jesus because you don't understand why he had to die, perhaps that's not a, a great argument. Perhaps it's not the best reason. Because perhaps, as we talked about in the video, is that there's something about our sin that requires justice. There's something about justice that we don't understand. We like justice as human beings. We cry out when there's injustice, when justice hasn't been served. It's why some of you, why you, why you advocate for kids. It's why some of you maybe marched in parades in 2020. It's why some of you support certain causes because you believe in justice. And we believe that, that God values justice as well. That, that, that our desire for justice is a reflection of who God is and his, his image in us, that we want justice. But God also being just didn't let us off free. Our sin required payment, but God decided to do something about that. Again, the Apostle Paul writes about this in his letter to the church at Rome. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Basically, look, you can't do enough good things. You can't sacrifice enough animals to save yourself. But rather, we, because of the knowledge of sin comes through law. Because of how high God's standard is, we recognize how far short we fall, how far we miss the mark. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. God is no longer making a distinction between Jew and Gentile, believers and unbelievers. God's grace, his righteousness is available to everyone, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just good people that sin, bad people that sin. Everyone sins and fall short of the glory of God, but God's righteousness is available through faith in Jesus. And they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That our justification before God, our being made right, is through Christ Jesus. It was given freely. It's an act of God's grace. You see, God gave himself to pay for our sin because our sin required payment. But God was a good God. He chose to pay the payment for ourselves. So we don't have to do enough good things because it's already been done for us. No other religion, no other worldview has this framework. Every other religion says, okay, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and then maybe if you do enough of that, then maybe you'll be good with the gods. Maybe you'll be good with our God, but the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity says, no, I've already done it. You're good. Just trust in what I have done. Because God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood, here's our, our, our phrase, our blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed, and God presented him, that is Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just in that he, again, he requires our sin be paid. But he is the justifier in that he decided that he was going to pay it. He was going to pay the debt that we could never pay. He demands that our sin requires payment, yet he paid it for us. He wouldn't be just if everyone got off free. We cry out when there's injustice, but God is just and God is the justifier. And he, he is full of grace because he paid it. He is full of mercy because he offers it to us freely. You see, Jesus came to die at a time when his death and sacrifice made sense. Today, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around but we can still benefit from it. We can still be set free. We can ex still experience the hope, the freedom, the forgiveness that comes from following Jesus. We do this all the time in life with things that we use, with our belief system. So why not do it with something that's more consequential, that has more weight with the weight of our life? Because we believe that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross provides a sole basis for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, God freely offers salvation to those who play place their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as the payment for their sin. So Christians, what would it look like if we lived as if that were true? What would, we what would it look like if we lived as if our debt had been paid instead of trying to pay it for ourselves? What would it look like if we actually trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus, that that was enough, and that God says, you are good with me, now go be good with other people. Demonstrate that you have a right relationship with me by how you love those made in my image. So if you're here today, you're watching online, you're not a follower of Jesus, my challenge for you is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What would it look like 
if you started to consider these things that we talked about today? What would it look like if instead of repeating uh, maybe the arguments that you've heard other people make, if you started arguing with Jesus? Because the best place to argue with somebody is actually with them, not separated from them. And we can't argue with Jesus if we stay away from him. So take a step towards Jesus. Bring him your arguments. Bring him your doubts. Bring him your questions and see what happens. See what happens. Perhaps you'll experience the love, the grace, and the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't followed Jesus, then what are you waiting for? Today could be your day. Because following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. And that's something that we all want. We all want more peace, more joy, more love, more self-control, more patience. And God gives us those things when we begin to follow his way. Because we, we know that we can't save ourselves, that we can't do enough good things, that we break our own rules. So why do we keep doing those things over and over, thinking that that is going to make us right with God? That doesn't make any sense. Rather, what makes sense is, okay, I've done those things. Maybe it's time to try something different. Maybe it's time to trust someone different. Maybe it's time to stop trusting me and start trusting the King of Kings and the Lord lords because perhaps there's something about following jesus that doesn't make sense to me but that doesn't make it any less true perhaps jesus died for you because he loves you let's pray heavenly father we praise you that you are our good king that it was your perfect sacrifice that saves us from our sins god that we come face to face with the fact that we cannot do enough good things to save ourselves and so, God, we're trusting in you. We're trusting that you are the perfect sacrifice, that we need that. We need your forgiveness. God, I pray for, for those in the room or watching online today who have not believed, who find it difficult to believe. God, that you would grant them faith right now. For those of you in the room that are Christians, I pray that God would increase your faith, that in spite of the doubts that you have, that you would know Jesus more fully. Amen.